All right, thank you guys. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm being sure I've got this thing recording like I'm supposed to. All right. I got the opportunity last night to, uh, like, I came into Rome, and I kind of came in the back way. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of what you'd expect for, you know, West Georgia area. And then uh, I walked over the bridge to go meet the guys for dinner, and I walked onto Broad Street. Is it Broad Street? And I was like, it's like walking into another country just by crossing the river. I mean, it's completely different. There was like this small Antifa mob that was in front of me walking around wearing all black. And I was like, all right, fair enough. I, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that Justin had to park here at the church and then walk to, to the restaurant on Broad Street. It was packed. There was one spot open right in the middle, and I told him, I said, hey, there's a spot open. You want me to go lay in the street until you, you get here? And then this guy pulls in, like, super quick in this little Suzuki hybrid car, and he gets out, and he's got this pearl snap button-up shirt with a big belt buckle and boots. And I was like, Justin, I can't take this guy. He's clearly handicapped. <laughs> but uh, it, it was great. Uh, thank you guys for your hospitality and allowing me to be here. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 1. Uh, one of the things that I, I do enjoy about being able to, to travel and uh, fly to West Africa, obviously 24 hours on a plane in a mask is not fun, uh, but you do get to meet a lot of people. And so I was flying to West Africa this last time, and I sat next to this woman on a plane, and you know, everybody's got the universal signal, right? Put in your earbuds, it means don't talk to me, I'm ready to just chill out for the next eight hours. And so I put in my earbuds, and she did everything but just reach over and pull the earbud out of my ear to talk, to talk to me. And she just starts chatting, and she goes, so what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a missionary, I'm a pastor. And then her giddy, like, happy attitude just immediately went to, oh. And I was like, I said, oh, that's not good. I said, uh, you got something against pastors? She goes, well, I'm an atheist. And I said, well, we got eight hours to talk about it, so it'll be great. <laughs> and so uh, she did actually... Uh, I said, hey, tell me what it is, what it is about Christianity that, y that you can't get behind. And she said, uh, well, you guys think that babies are going to hell. I said, who told you that? No, we don't. I said, actually, if you look in 2 Samuel and we see where David's son dies, he says, he'll not return to me, but I'll go to him. So I think that's pretty clear evidence that the babies go to heaven. She goes, well, I also don't like you guys because you think that women are supposed to be subservient to men and they're second-class citizens. It's like Jesus revealed himself first to women who had no credible evidence back in the day. They couldn't even testify. I said, and not only that, in a marriage relationship, Scripture says that a, a woman has as much right, if not more right, to her husband's body than he does. I said, that sounds pretty progressive to me. She goes, well, I've never heard that. And so the conversation went on for about two hours, uh, just back and forth. And then at the end of it, she said, well, you know, if, if more Christians thought like you, I might be open. I might be open to it. It's like most Christians do think like I do. The problem was is that she had based her idea on what Christianity was out of this presupposed idea she already had. She had let the world tell her what Christians were supposed to be rather than actually searching the scriptures and deciding for herself what it was supposed to look like. And you can't blame her because as Christians, we do the exact same thing. We already have these ideas based on our experiences in life about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to be in a relationship with one another, but we don't search the scriptures to ask the scriptures what that says. 
And so here in chapter 7, as, as Jesus is finishing the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the better Moses, right? Moses stands on a mountain there to free the people from slavery to Egypt. Jesus stands on the mountain to free us from slavery to sin and death. Moses stands on the mountain to give new commandments. Jesus stands on the mountain and says, you don't need new commandments. You need to be a new creation. You need to have new heart and new affections. And so Jesus, standing as the better Moses, begins to talk about what this new kingdom looks like. And then in, here in, verse, or in chapter 7, he starts to speak directly to these religious people that are doing the same thing. They have this idea of what it means to be religious and to be in a community. And he's saying, listen, before, before you really religious people get up in your ivory towers and start trying to fix everybody's problems and solve the world, all right, let me just go ahead and put some biblical rules in place about what this is supposed to look like. And so the main idea of our text this morning is that in order for us to engage in relationships biblically, we have to see ourselves correctly before we can see others clearly. All right, we have to see ourselves correctly before we can see others clearly. So starting in verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you... Oh, sorry. <clears throat> it will be measured to you. I almost got ahead of myself there. Sorry. So he's, he's telling us, like, not to judge, right? Like, don't judge others. I, I don't care who you are. I'm pretty sure that even in like atheist school, they teach them this verse because people could have no idea of the Bible. But the minute you start talking about sin in somebody's life, they go, well, judge not so that you're not judged. Isn't that in your Bible? I'm like, yes, that's in my Bible, but that's not what this means, right? That's not the context. But we, we do like almost have this critical judgmental spirit as part of our sinful fallen nature. We, we're just naturally these critical people. I'll give you guys a, a little insight in, into Snowbird if you guys don't know. About 100 and 120 students go there every summer to serve as interns. And so they spend all summer together. And you can imagine if you have uh, young college students that spend a summer together, a lot of them start to like each other at the end of that summer. And so there's this waiting period at the end though, right? Like it's kind of this unspoken rule. You're gonna to have to wait some time to let come off that summer high before you call somebody and, and you try to start asking if they wanna be your wife. Uh, but this is what these guys do. And so, so, one of the, like, so this guy, right, he, his time's up. He can start searching around, right, trying to find Miss Wright. And, and so he starts reaching out to this prospective wife. Um, but his mom is super critical. Like, she cannot be pleased. And so he's bringing, he's bringing these girls home, right, to meet his mom. And she's like... I don't like her. She's just, she's over the top. She's too uptight. She's just too religious. It's not going to, he's like, all right. So he brings this other girl home. He's like, she's too pretty. He's like, mom, like, what do you mean too pretty? She's going to be high maintenance. I know she is. And so he's kind of baffled, like, what do I do? And so one, another guy tells him, he's like, hey, man, here's what you need to do. Just bring home somebody who's just like your mom. Find a girl that has everything in common with her. And he's like, all right. So he starts kind of looking at the field and finding the one that's most like his mom. And it's kind of eerie, like they dress alike, they talk a lot alike, like they have a lot of things in common. And so this is the girl he brings home. And so after they come back, his buddy circles back and he's like, hey man, how did it go? He's like, uh, it went all right. He goes, oh my gosh, your mom didn't like her either. He goes, oh no, no, mom loved her, dad hated her. <laughs> <laughs> So, 
We, we joke about being critical, right, and, and having this judgmental spirit, but anybody who's grown up in, in a home where their parents have been super critical and they've, they've been harsh and, and overbearing can tell you that there's, there's really nothing funny about it. it. It tears students down. It tears children down. And a lot of times they take those, those issues into adulthood and marriage that were formed in the home. It creates a lot of insecurities. And so what we see is that if we profess to be Christians, but we're incredibly critical of everybody around us and we nitpick at all these things, what's really happening is we're less concerned with seeing people conform to the image of Christ and more concerned with seeing them conform to the image of you. I don't want to see people conform to the image of God. I want them to look like me. And that's why I'm overly critical. So when, when the Lord says, judge not so, you, so that you be not judged, he's trying to put this holy fear in us about having these critical hearts and this critical spirit. In Romans 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? What he's saying is, listen, in condemning other people apart from the Holy Spirit and doing it in love and in Christ, the best outcome you can have is proving that you were right. Right? I have that conversation with my wife a lot. Apart from Christ, I might be able to prove I'm right. Most times, I'm not. I'm usually wrong. But the best you can do is prove that you're right. And what Paul says is if you who know what's right still do what's wrong, all you've done is condemn yourself. So he's telling us to put away this critical spirit. So we pick up in verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? So this is our second point, to see others clearly. And so this is a humorous picture, right, that, that Jesus is developing. Obviously, we all know what it's like to, to have a dust get in our eye or get something in our eye and, and how irritating it is. But he's painting this picture of this guy with this 4 by 4 sticking out of his face, walking around going, hey, you got a speck in your eye? Let me get that for you, man. Like, let me come over and help you out. And, and the point is, is, like, how can you ignore the outrageous sin at home in your own life and feel like you're the best equipped person to speak into somebody else's? You have to address the sin that's at home in you first. One of the greatest examples that we see of this in Scripture is in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 and 7, where Nathan calls out David for his murder of Uriah and then stealing of his wife in Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich man, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan comes in and, and finds a way to rebuke a king. And the point of this, that passage being that even kings aren't above the law of God. It's like, how did David miss this glaring, obvious sin in his own life, but had this great concern for this slaughtered lamb when he had just slaughtered another person's husband so that he could take 
his wife for himself. He was completely blind to his own hypocrisy. And for a lot of people, focusing on other people's faults is just a welcome distraction from focusing on our own. So these Pharisees that Jesus is talking to in this time, we see that they're incredibly critical. They're focusing on other people's faults rather than their own. But I think we also see another part of this is that they have this overwhelming need for approval. They have to be seen. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. He's talking about people in the church. Then in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. Verse 16, And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. These people are critical because they're actually incredibly insecure. They need other people to validate their worth. So when then what Jesus says is as he moves into this, verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus' intent isn't for us to just be passive against sin and be like, well, I can't judge anybody, so I better not say anything. I can't be critical. I just need to focus on me and focus on myself. That's not his point. His point is, is that we just need to be more concerned with the desires of God than the desires of the flesh. We need to be focused more on God's agenda than our own agenda in other people's lives. The way this works is that like, when, when you're submitting yourself to the Lord in humility and you're asking him to search your heart and find any grievous way in you and he floods you with his love and his mercy and you recognize your sin and your need for a savior and then you repent of that sin and you put it out of your life, now you're equipped out of the overflow of love and mercy that Christ has shown you to show that to somebody else and to walk with them in a gentle way and to come alongside them and point them to repentance in humility, not out of self-righteousness and not out of pride. The thing about an eye, like the Lord using this picture, like the thing about an eye is an eye is so sensitive. Any, guys, like, any of the guys in here have been poked in the eye in a basketball game or in a sporting event or something like that? Like the first thing that happens is somebody tur- touches your eye as you close up and you recoil. You're just like, oh my gosh, get out of my face. It hurts really bad because it's incredibly sensitive. So whenever you poke at that sensitive, sinful part in somebody's life, they're going to close up and they're going to recoil. People are going to withdraw from that. So the removal of a speck, it has to be gentle. It has to be deliberate. It has to be done in a caring way. And I am guilty of just trying to slap the speck out of people's eyes. I I don't always have a loving tone. I, I was thinking about this. I was like, man, just a few weeks ago, there's a guy that I have an ongoing relationship with and just making poor life choices and trying to counsel him through some of this stuff. And he went out, he'd had too much to drink, and he had rolled his truck. And I was like, yeah, I mean, play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. That's the way that works. And I looked back and said, probably could have been more caring, <laughs> more loving. But for me, 
All right, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everybody's a nail. I'm just saying, like that's the way, that's the way I work. But I think, I think part of this avoiding confrontation like this is that we also live in this instant gratification culture where we want things to just come easy. Like we, can't, we almost can't even fathom the amount of time and effort it takes to cultivate a real relationship with somebody where you have enough equity in their life that you can speak hard truth and they'll be able to receive it. It takes time. And we were, I planted a garden like a month ago for my wife. She's like, oh, I want some strawberries and I want some vegetables. And I was like, okay, I can go plant some seeds. I can water it every day. I can make sure the pH balance is right in the soil and I'm putting fertilizer and got to go hoe up the weeds and keep it clean and do all these things. It's like, or I can just go get some pot and soil and a plant and get one of those pre-made ones that's going to produce fruit in about a week and just stick that in a pot. And that's what I did. So, but it's because it's a lot of work to actually cultivate. It takes a lot of time. I, I want to see fruit now. I don't want to have to work for it. All right. I just, I just want to see it and I want my dirt to be pretty. I want to have a nice plant on top of it. And a lot of times we just want to have pretty churches and we just want things to be okay and we don't want to walk through the messiness and actually have to cultivate those relationships and go through difficult times. I think that even then, with all that cultivating and all that work, people are still going to reject counsel. And probably some parents in here that have had kids that they've just invested their entire lives into and they've tried to bring them up in a right way and they still, once they leave the house, they, they walk away from the Lord. They turn away. And it's a difficult thing to process because you feel like a failure. And so because we feel that rejection, we feel that sting, sometimes that keeps us from being invested in other people's relationships and actually doing the work of discipleship rather than just trying to bring people into our congregation or into our churches and hoping that something there happens in their life, rather than us being the thing that's happening in their life. And Jesus tells us that's what's going to happen. Look in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 8 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. There was a, a time a few years ago where there was a young man that I was discipling, and it became obvious that he was living in unrepentant sin. And so I came to him and spoke clearly about it and told him to repent and to turn. And uh, he said he did and said he had. And I was like, okay, we're going to continue to follow up every week on this and continue discipleship and see how things are progressing. And everything seemed to be going really well. And then about three months down the road, I, I find out that he's actually been lying to me the entire time, that he's still living in unrepentant sin, that he hasn't actually changed anything. He's just kind of going through the motions to keep me off his back. And so then we went and, and took the issue before the elders and I remember the last conversation I had with him, I was sitting on the porch with him, and he said, I can't believe you're doing this to me. You are ruining my life. And I said, brother, I am not trying to run you out of the church. I'm trying to restore you to God. 
I'm trying to restore you to right relationship. This isn't about trying to kick you out. This is about trying to bring you back into the family in a wholesome and good way. And he goes, well, I just don't think this is the way Jesus would have done it. He said, how can you say that? In Matthew 18, this is exactly what Jesus commands us to do. That is why we're doing it this way. He goes, well, I know that's what Scripture says. I just don't think that's what Jesus would do. If that's somebody's heart, if they've hardened their heart to that point where they read Scripture, they know what Scripture says, and they still convince themselves in their mind, I just don't think that's what Jesus would do. They are trampling the pearls. You are investing in them, like deep concern that they would return to the Lord, giving them wisdom and counsel and love and gentleness, and all they want is the rotten, worthless things of this world. They just want the desires of the flesh. They just want to be satisfied. They want to be comfortable. Philippians 3.19 says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Christ, is, Christ hasn't given us a spirit of criticism, but he has given us a spirit of discernment. We have to discern when we need to speak truth into people's lives to call them up into holiness. Again, we're not trying to put anybody outside the family. We're trying to restore people to God. So how do we acquire this this balance of boldness to call people out in sin, but the grace to walk with them in humility and gentleness? Continue on in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The third point of this is that we have to seek him consistently. If we want to see ourselves correctly, if we want to see others clearly, we have to seek God consistently. Look at verses 7 through 11. Look what it says. Ask. Seek. Verse 8, everyone who asks, the one who seeks, the one who knocks. Verse 9, if his son asks. 10, if he asks. 11, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? So what is this thing that we're so intensely supposed to be asking for and seeking for? This same passage is rephrased in in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. I think it offers us some clarity. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who seek Him? We ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We ask to be led by the Spirit. We ask for the wisdom of the Spirit. We ask for the discernment of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just meek and mild in this passivity and weakness. It's just strength and humility where we see ourselves correctly as sinners in need of God's grace. But we also have the love and sincerity in relationships to call people out of their sin. 
there's a, a young couple that was in our, in our home a few weeks ago. And like, they, they don't, like, this couple, they, they don't have a bad marriage. They just got some really bad patterns. Whenever they get into an argument, he runs off and leaves for a few days. It's like, oh, I'll show her. She doesn't know how good she's got it. Let me be gone for a couple days. Let her try to do this on her own. And then she turns around and gets on Facebook and starts talking about what a horrible husband he is and just trying to publicly shaming him into to coming back home. It's just bad patterns. And so as they sat at our dinner table and we're, we're talking about some of the complexities that's happening right now, what we find out is there's a lot of people in their life that are giving them advice right now. There are a lot of people that are telling them what they should be doing. You know what, you should take off. Just leave for a few days. She'll realize how much she misses you. Oh yeah, he wants to be like that? Why don't you just go on Facebook and, and, and say something about it? That'll teach him. And so the first thing I tell them is like, okay, let me tell you one thing right now. All these friends that are speaking into your life, if somebody tells you that they're your friend and they're sowing division between you and your spouse, they're not your friend. You need to put them out of your life. That is not your friend. The second point of that, all these people want to give you advice. How many of them are praying for you and how many of them are praying to God before they come give you advice? How many of them are seeking the wisdom of the Lord before they speak into this? Or are they just speaking out a raw emotion? You'll find that most of those people are just telling you what they think you want to hear. And the problem is, is you're just accepting it because it's really what you want to do in your own strength anyways. You need people that are praying for you. You need people that are going on their hands and knees before the Lord and asking God, God, how do I deal with this? How do I speak truth into somebody's life? How do I do this with humility and gentleness? And they've already talked to the Lord about you long before they come and talk to you about the Lord. Those are the kinds of relationships that we have to have. If any of you have walked through these seasons with somebody, you understand like, it's very difficult. And it takes a lot of boldness to walk into the messiness of people's lives and to call out sin for what it is. And you're really just trying to restore a concern in their heart for the desires of God and restore them to right, right relationship. And it's a very vulnerable place because the reality is there's no promise that these people will ever respond. And in the process, they can drag your name through the dirt, they can drag your family's name through the dirt, they can drag your church through the dirt, and everybody can suffer in the process as a family. I, was, uh, I have a friend, his name is Josh, I was on a call with him this week, and we were talking about, he's a, he's a surgeon and a missionary, <clears throat> and I said, Josh, how important, <clears throat> excuse me, how important is a surgeon's success rate? And he's like, uh, it's very important, obviously. He's like, it's your reputation. Your success rate is your reputation. He said, is there anybody that's got like 100% success rate? He said, if anybody tells you they've got 100% success rate, they're either lying or they're not really helping people that need it. 
they're not really helping the people that need it the most. Because if they've got a 100% success rate, they're just picking the cases that are building their reputation and not the people who are truly in need. If you haven't felt the sting of rejection in your relationships, if you haven't had people reject your counsel, then you're either lying or you're not speaking into the truly desperate situations in your life. You're not going to the hard to reach people. You're not allowing the Lord to stretch you out of your own wisdom and your own strength and your own abilities to be relying on the Holy Spirit to do it for you. We have to allow ourselves to be stretched. And our security in this is that when we're deeply rooted in Christ, we're free from the opinions of people. The opinions of man no longer affect my obedience to God. Because I know who I am and I know whose I am. It says the way's easy that leads to destruction and the way's hard that leads to life. So there's a difference between a critical spirit and a discerning spirit. Critical, critical spirits are controlled by men. Discerning spirits are led by the Holy Spirit. We, what we have to understand is like, even the most uninteresting person you meet, the most uninteresting person in your life, the most uninteresting person that you have a relationship with is an eternal soul. And one day, they will either be so glorious that if you were to see them today, you'd be tempted to worship them. Or they'll be so hideous and afflicted that you'll cover your face because you can't bear to look at them. And every day in those relationships, you're helping one another towards one of those goals, either to glory or destruction. So we have to view our relationships through the light of eternity, not what's temporary, not what feels right now, not what's comfortable to us or what's comfortable to the church. View them as eternal souls in light of eternity that will either be glorified or destroyed. If you're, if you're here this morning and this is the first time that you're hearing about the gospel and you're hearing about what it means to be a part of the family of God, you're saying, man, I just, I just don't know if I can measure up to that. I don't know if I can be a part of that family. The standards are so high. I just know the scripture says that no one is righteous. No, no, not one. There's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ proved his love for us that while we're still sinners, he died for us. And that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Ephesians 2 says that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man can boast. So the good news is, is that you could never earn it even if you wanted to. It's simply by the faith that the Holy Spirit gives us and the grace of God that we're saved. And so if you, you haven't submitted your life to Christ, if you've been living in rebellion, if you've been trampling on the jewels that people have thrown before you, I want to encourage you after this to find a believer, find an elder, and ask what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. Uh, let me pray, and we'll close out. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word thankful that we don't have to be defined by what the world says. We don't have to be defined by our own emotions or what we think is right or intelligent, but we just simply have to look at your word and do what you call us to do, to be obedient to the scriptures, to encourage and love one another the way that you tell us to encourage one another.
to call each other up into holiness and obedience because that's what your scripture says. I pray that we would be more motivated by the things of you than the things of this world. That we'd be more concerned with how you see us than how others see us. And that we would be faithful. That we would be obedient. And that we would learn to walk alongside people in love and grace and humility, recognizing that we're sinners in need of that same grace and that same love. Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would overwhelm them and move them and draw them to you. And we ask this for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.